So hello, hello, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. Or also, I should I should ask thanks also for having me because we are actually recording this episode from your own apartment. Yeah, we've been split it into two different rooms, so we'll have a video here. We're trying to make it real, and it's as real as it gets. <laughs> Rick, I would love in this episode, we will be talking a lot about the AIDS pandemic that has hit many countries around the world. And of course, the U.S. is around them. And I have lots of questions about the issues and your experience is very interesting. But maybe first of all, if we can start a bit, if you can tell us a bit, you start, you lived always in the U.S., right? So how did you find yourself slowly realizing about yourself, coming out and then getting to activism and volunteering with queer issues. And I will ask, have you always, this was your first kind of volunteering with the queer communities or how did you find yourself also being an active part of those organizations and communities in, in the U.S. and especially in L.A.? I realized that I was gay yeah, in public school when I was 14 or 15. And I graduated from public school and went on to university and immediately and became... Can I ask in around what years? Can I ask around um, what years? I graduated I from public... school. disclose your age, but... Man, I don't have a problem with that. I graduated from public school in 1978 and then went on to university. I was very involved with speech communications, debating competitions, oratory, very verbal in terms of my, um, my background, competed all around the United States in competitions. And it just fit really well once I got out of the public school system in the university to get involved with the LGBTQ community. I, for the first couple of years, I was involved with marches and parades, and I walked in some of the largest in the world, and I was also there for the very first one in the very conservative part of the United States, which we call Orange County, very, um, right-leaning, and we were part of that parade. And at that point, this was in the very early 80s, and um, we were very afraid of violence, very afraid of what would happen when we walked down the street. They circled the party event with booths and stuff, with fencing that you could not see through because they were afraid that if someone could sight us with a rifle, that they might take shots at us. But nothing ultimately happened, but it was scary. As I moved forward in university, I volunteered in the Gay and Lesbian Association on the University of Oregon campus. And um, I manned people the phones for people calling in, trying to find out anything about gay people, organizations. We were the only phone number 
in the phone book at that time that had anything to do with some LGBT topics or services. So we got people calling from hospitals. We had people calling from therapy, conversion therapy. Their parents had forced them into crying, not knowing what to do. We had people that were interested in getting involved. And I was one of the people that on campus in a booth, giving people information, talking about the gay and lesbian organizations on campus. And, and it was, that was probably the beginning of my activism and my role as a volunteer. And can I ask about the hotline? Am I saying correct? Line or hotline? How did it has a this a one? This name? one was out of an office in the student union building. We had an office that was for gay and lesbian activities. And so, and that was we, back in the eighties. That was back in the eighties, probably 82, maybe 83. But and the I was people part of called you were, were people who were only part of a university community or just the town. Like, no, how big they was were it? because like the, the US yeah. is huge, right? So yeah, well, the the area that we were in was in a state called Oregon in the United States, and for I would say half of the state. There was no listing anywhere except us. Um, so we got people that were calling from a hundred miles away. And we had people that were calling from downstairs in their parents' home across the street. Wide variety of people. I remember talking with a young man, probably 17, whose parents were forcing him into conversion therapy to try to make him straight with a psychiatrist. And I gave him information about local psychological resources, things that he can do, ways that he could combat this. And six months later, he was graduated from public school and he came to the university and he thanked me for helping him and for being part of his discovery. And to this day, he's a good friend. But we, it was basically kind of a clearinghouse to just hear people out. It was before AIDS. It was before a lot of things. But the university was a very gay-positive environment. The student body president was gay. The um, editor of the school paper was a lesbian. There were a lot of people in place that could help support us, but we still had disputes with right-wing elements on campus, trying to get our signs torn down, trying to get us so we couldn't use different facilities. We did the first gay pride event on a college campus in the state of Oregon. And this would have been about 82. And um, we did, we had a comedian in from San Francisco. We had a dance. We had a 5K run. We did a lot of different things. And it was very affirming. The run, the people who won the first 
three spots in the run were all straight folk who came to the run because it was a run. But they were supportive and they were allies before anyone even used that term ally. And, and that was what it was all about, was reaching out to the community, um, letting ourselves be seen, letting ourselves be heard. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it tremendously. So that's my first probably activism and also working on hotline, working on phone bank, that type of thing. And, and just being a person that, that people, the office, so that when students or other people came in, they had somebody to talk to, um, somebody to ask questions of. I can't even count the number of times that I would sit in the office and I would see somebody out in the hallway clearly wanting to come in and circling and looking at the door, but so frightened that they couldn't or didn't come in. But, you know, maybe someday they did. I know the first time I went there, I was scared to death because I was out to a few people but I'd never been public about it. And I ran into this tiny little woman named Marsha. When I walked in and she goes, are you new? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a new student. She goes, follow me. And so she led me out onto the student campus where they had all these booths for students to walk by and sign up for organizations and clubs and things like that. And she said, I need a lunch break. I've been manning the booth for gates to, for students to come by for the last couple of hours. I'll be back in about an hour. So if you could just stay here, hand out, have people sign up for different things. And I'm just sitting there with my mouth hanging open going, I'm scared to death. And you want me to stand here and talk to a bunch of strangers about being gay. Okay, I'm a people pleaser. And I'm going to stand here. And you did, I did that. I did for an hour. Wow. <laughs> my first day on campus. And that's how I became involved with all the different things that were there. Hey, editors, for previous part, just a cut less than 15, 20 seconds uh, until the word there. We'll do the cut and we're starting from the beginning about joining the course at three, two, one. After I finished working at the university, volunteering, I went down to Los Angeles for graduate school. And when I was there, I got involved with the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles. Basically, 150 men, very highly accomplished musically, and just doing regulars of concerts every year and touring. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it tremendously. The fact that they were so good was a plus, too. But when I joined the Gay Men's Chorus, was also the time that... AIDS was becoming very prevalent. We could no longer kind of ignore it and pretend it wasn't there. So 
Now I'm not hearing your well. I'm not hearing you now. I have to ask about oh. the AIDS. Oh, okay. I have to ask about the AIDS. It's a word that has so much meaning behind it, and I'm sure that we will discover about it even more in this episode. But I wanted to ask you, what was, you know, like Rick, I, in the past, I interviewed for a hotline back in, in Israel a few decades after, a few years after. <laughs> and well. I didn't have to deal with anything just like the AIDS pandemic. And I think it took many years. Probably I will never be able to understand. I think this is something that I also invite our listeners. I mean, like sometimes there are these words, black on white letters and words that we're not necessarily aware about how real they are, about how they affect our lives. And sometimes it just seems as a word. And, you know, like, for instance, um, AIDS, which we cannot take this as granted. And I want to ask, probably before it even had a name, what was the first encounter? How or the first encounters of that? Before it, I'm sure before it had a name, like maybe like we had the COVID pandemic. It took time, it took uh, months, if not more, until people started to realize what's happening or having a name, understanding what it is. So what were the first, did it have a name? How did you know about it? Or did you start hearing some gossips or hearing some stories? How, it, how what were your first ways of meeting that? Let's say? Yeah. The, the first I ended up learning about AIDS I was still in my undergraduate program at the University of Oregon, and I was reading gay U.S. publications, and they were talking about this cancer, this disease that was going on. And you're right, they didn't have the term AIDS yet, autoimmune deficiency. They were talking about gay cancer. They were talking about pneumonia and a variety of different things. But it became very clear at that point in the early 1980s that the, this disease, this virus, was heavily impacting gay men. It impacted many other people as well. But lots of its victims were gay men. and. I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm in Oregon. There are very few cases of that here. I'm safe. And we had a speaker come to the, um, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. At that point, that was the name of it. And speak about the health crisis that was going on and... A lot of us were shocked. We had no idea what the major cities were going through. We, we were from rural areas primarily. So it was a shock for us. And that's when we started dealing with, you know, different sexual pra practices, safer sex, a lot of different things. But at that point, they didn't know what we know now. They didn't know how it was communicated. They didn't know how people got it. And so 
in that state, knowing that there was this illness out there, was when I moved to Los Angeles and became involved in the gay community in Los Angeles. I wasn't by any means the leader of a movement there. There were lots of leaders. And um, what we ended up doing is um, that many people got involved with what was called AIDS Project Hotline or AIDS Project Los Angeles was the, the overall organization. When I first started volunteering there, there were six or eight people. And when I stopped volunteering there, there were hundreds of people, primarily gays and lesbians and transgender that um, were fighting. But I wanted to know what I could do. And because of my communication background, one of the one of the places where I could fit would be working on a hotline for people to come or call in and try to get information about this illness, about what we would come to call AIDS. They had a dire need for people to work on the hotlines because the burnout rate was so tremendous. Many people could only do it for a few weeks and then had to stop. So every week they had a new training class and the training classes got into areas that many of us weren't even that comfortable talking our own story yet. All we had to become comfortable talking about all different kinds of sex, all different kinds of terminology for different kinds of sex, different parts of the body, all of those kinds of things. And part of what they put us through was game playing, where we had to brainstorm every sexual activity we could think of and every terminology and every act. And we did. And we got over very quickly being uncomfortable or nervous. But why did you have about... to learn about that? Like, how is it related? Because, well, because they had a feeling that AIDS was being transmitted sexually. And they, the research was showing the, the lines of contagion of from one person to the next person to the next person, that there was often a very strong sexual component. There could also have been intravenous sharing of needles. They didn't know yet that there might be something with the blood supply, a problem for hemophiliacs and other folks that needed blood transfusions. So it was very, you knew you had to be prepared to talk about anything. And many of the people calling in have never had anybody that they could talk to about these things and were embarrassed to talk about them and ashamed of themselves and what they were finding pleasurable. And, um, and so in the training, we got used to talking about these things. We got used to talking to people from a position where we had very little information. We didn't really know what we were dealing with. They were calling because they were scared. 
once I got through the training, I was like class number 46 or something like that. They immediately started another class and another class and another class. I met my best friend on the AIDS hotline 40 years ago. We're still close as brothers. We've been through the trenches. We've been through, you know, hell and back. But the really terrifying part was when you looked at the phone ringing and you just never knew what was going to be on the other end of that line because you couldn't give people advice on what to do because nobody knew what to do. We were starting to talk about safer sex and protecting yourself and your partners through condoms and other kinds of steps that you could take. But we couldn't tell them it was going to be 100% accurate. We didn't even know yet whether or not it could truly be communicated through saliva. So people were going, well, can I even kiss anymore? Or what can I so do? People who called you were not necessarily people who were diagnosed with HIV, right? I, from what I'm now learning and understanding that generally people were afraid like even, yeah. or like, yeah. how fast did it we, grow also? I mean, like, it, let's say one day you're getting one call and then to, yeah. because I understand like more courses and more stuff, how, it, it was growing. And feel how? It was growing from hundreds to thousands diagnosed in the country and in Los Angeles County, specifically thousands every month. And the people that called in were scared and we didn't know, we knew that they had developed an antibody test that you could go in and you could be tested your blood, but it took like two weeks to get the test results back. And what we didn't know was anything that could be done about it. There were no treatments. There was a diagnosis that you have the antibodies in your system and no treatment, no pills, no antivirals, anything. So people had the impression that if they went in and got tested and they found out they were positive, that they were going to die. It was a death sentence. And we didn't know to tell them anything different. We tried to, to hold their hands and help them and give them some resources through medical. We had some medical resources we could refer people to. We had some legal resources. Um, some people called in because they were sick and they wanted to know who they could turn to to write up a will. Because a 27-year-old man didn't necessarily have a will, didn't have feel that they needed a will. They were invincible at that point. And we gave them phone numbers for legal clinics and places that they could go and people that they could contact to just do a simple will for them. Um, Was there a need to find gay-friendly lawyers for that, if I understand yeah, correct? Yeah. Le legal clinics were the best, but it was... But why? Well, was people were afraid to give... About it or so? Yes. Yeah. There were... Most attorneys at that point that were marketing themselves, looking for a new business, 
were not marketing in the gay community. They weren't looking for business in the gay community. And so the first thing that someone would have to do with this presumably straight attorney, male or female, is to come out with them, come out to them. And then the second thing they'd have to do is tell them that they had this gay plague, this gay disease that was probably going to kill them. And would they mind meeting with them and helping them put together a will? Gay people didn't know what transmitted it. Straight people didn't know what transmitted it. So there are a lot of people that didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to take that business because they didn't want to be in the same room with somebody that had AIDS. So we tried to communicate different sources of information that were gay positive or at least neutral in terms of what was going on. But sometimes it was, the calls were just horrific. I remember a call, I will remember it all my life. A woman called in and she was crying and she said, my son has been diagnosed with this illness. And she goes, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell him. I don't know. And I'm sitting there just listening to her and I'm crying myself at that point. Um, because you can't not. A parent is calling in about their child saying, I think my child is going to die. And we couldn't tell them any different because there were no treatments yet. There, there wasn't even the basic beginnings of treatments. The only thing we could say is be as loving and supportive as you possibly can. Hug him, hold him, um, be there for him, to listen to him and to help him through this difficult period. But I look back now and it's like, you know, we did a good thing, but it was in such, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no idea because we didn't have information yet. And our government in the United States was refusing to even talk about it. They were refusing to even say the word AIDS when AIDS became, um, when that, that was the name that it was going to be settling on. Um, our president was in, in office for three years with AIDS killing people around the world and in the United States by the thousands. And he refused to even say the word or acknowledge it. It was frightening. That was, who was the president back? That was Ronald Reagan, was um, our president. And the anger that was boiling up within the gay community, just watching people you know die. And they didn't know what to do. And the government wasn't doing anything. They weren't funding the research. The churches were not being supportive of gay people. And so organizations formed to try to combat that and try to get the word out about this disease and about the inactivity of our government. And that's where um, ACT UP came to be was an early, more, more militant, more aggressive form of activism, strong protests, 
a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of um, analogies to blood and murder. And a lot of the people that were participating were sick and no one cared. So you ended up seeing through stages of anger, like you, you first tried to do something through the mechanisms that were there. I tried to do it through the hotline. And, but there was only so much you could do without the research and the money and the support from our government and our churches and the institutions that were around us. And many people turned to the more aggressive form of nonviolent. But people learned, just like other protest movements in the United States, people learned to stay, not resist, to stay down, to get down on the ground and let people zip tie your wrists and take you away if that was what they were going to do that day. It was frightening. I remember we marched one time. I was not a large member of ACT UP, but I was involved sometimes. And we marched on the state capitol in California, in Sacramento, California. And we had a conservative governor at that point who was not helping, was not understanding. And we were ringing the state capitol with people and they sent police officers on horseback out to clear us away. I still remember an, a police officer in riot gear on a horse riding towards me as a citizen. And all I was doing was speaking my truth and trying to get somebody to listen to us. Many people were arrested during that time, but it frightened people who didn't want to get involved, who didn't want to hear about gay people and lesbians. And it served a really good purpose because many of us were too shy to stand up and say what was happening and what we were seeing. I eventually had to stop singing with the Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles because there were too many funerals. You know, you get 150 out gay men who are positive, sex positive, who are out there dating and having relationships. And you had probably 50% of the people that were there were positive for AIDS. People were dying in the chorus. I remember a very sweet man had this beautiful tenor voice and he was singing a solo from Les Miserables, the musical call, and the song was called Bring Him Home. And this boy was singing this beautiful song about he is away, keep him safe, bring him home to me. It was one man singing into another. And we, know in the, we knew in the chorus that this gentleman was very, very sick. And that was the last concert that he ever performed with us. And we all stood there and cried because we were saying goodbye. We didn't understand it. We just knew 
it was horrific. So as we started getting more and more information and research, we started to be able to give some information to people and give some advice. Do I go and get tested? Now, our doctor, if you go for a physical, the doctor automatically says, oh, I'm going to do this blood panel and I'll do AIDS and syphilis and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, we don't really think about it. But in those days, if you became positive, you know, no treatment, and you're also terrified that somebody in the government or outside is going to get hold of this information or these records and your job could be in danger. People in your family could disown you, not wanting to be around you. But gradually started getting more information and some medications. One of the early medications was called AZT. And I don't know what that stood for. But it was really hard on people, their liver, their systems. The drug could just as likely kill you as AIDS could kill you. But it was a halt. And so we were able to start talking about some of the options that were out there. Because realize this was before computers and the internet. Well, not before computers, but before the internet. And so people couldn't just get on the internet and Google a search for the new medication. You had to find newspapers or magazine or talk to your doctor who you hoped was educated in terms of what was happening with AIDS, but not necessarily so. A lot of the doctors had no idea and didn't want to know. I remember a group of us from the chorus, every Christmas, we would go and we would sing carols in the AIDS wards of and the people there were souls. And many of them had no family. Family didn't come. And we stood in their rooms and we just sang to them. And they just cried. And we cried. And I was probably one of my favorite memories. You know, it sounds bad, but just being there and seeing those songs with brothers and for people that you didn't know, but that were suffering and needed to know that someone else cared. It was wonderful. But eventually I stopped doing the calls. I couldn't do it anymore. It just took too much out of you. And I was involved with the Gay Men's Chorus and it seemed like every weekend there were multiple funerals and people that were in the chorus wanted people from the chorus to come and sing. And then complete strangers would call us saying, my brother just died. Would you please send some people over to sing at his service? And so if you were available, you did it. But between burnout on the phones and then burnout, seeing at too many funerals and those types of things, eventually I had to say, I couldn't do it anymore. I never tested positive. 
But I remember the first time I went in for a test, I went in with my best friend, Jeffrey, who I'd met on the hotline and neither one of us had ever been tested. And we went together and we got tested and then we had to wait for the days to pass to go back in and find out the results. The waiting is what killed you because you just didn't know what it was going to be. And we both came out negative at that point, but many of our friends didn't. I remember my friend Burley, big Burley guy. And he died and he was in the chorus with us. And I remember several of us holding him up from the back so that he didn't stumble when he stepped out to do a solo. And this big, beautiful baritone voice singing and all of us knowing this is going to be one of his last concerts. And he went back and was sick. And then when we all came off stage, he had this friggin' big, blonde, curly wig on. And he was just laughing and having a good old time. And he was cheering to cheer us up. And um, I will always remember him. And part of the journey, you know, if for AIDS, many of us would not have come out, would not have spoken out, would not have fought. And, but if for AIDS, a whole generation wouldn't have been killed. You know, you went to events and places for years after that, and you'd see people, younger people, and then the whole gap of 10, 15 years was nobody in their 40s. There's nobody in their late 30s. They all died. And the beautiful artists and playwrights and singers that went through all of this was just a loss to humanity. What we gave up. That's kind of my experience. I didn't stop volunteering, but I stopped volunteering with AIDS for a while because I just, I couldn't face anymore. I couldn't say goodbye to any more friends. It's just, you know, and, but gradually medications became available, treatment became available. One of my dearest friends that I've known for many years has had been positive for 25, 30 years. And, but he had multiple sclerosis, MS. He eventually passed away from that, not AIDS. Even though he was positive, even though he had a diagnosis of AIDS, the medications that they developed over time worked for him. They didn't work for everybody, but they worked for him and they kept him alive 20, 25 years past when they thought he would die. So I had to feel thankful for that. I got to know him in those 20, 25 years.
Otherwise, I never would have met her. Rick, I... First of all, it's, it's just about, you know, like that, um, as we started, that it's much more than a word. It's experiences. It's uh, not a single short event. It's been for years, like going to places and seeing a whole generation, even generations, like 10, 15 years missing. Also for a generation of many of the people who who died from it. Many of them they were activists in times that the movements started, like Stonewall riots and the movement were all happening around a decade before that. So there's definitely a lot to digest, let's say, or a lot to try and Im- or to imagine. And be- so I'm very thankful for you for that. And it's I'm sure it's not an easy thing to do. So I'm, I'm very thankful for you for, for sharing this with us. And, and before we finish, I wanted to ask you two questions. One of them I've learned really recently, and we've been talking about it before recording, about the, the why silence kills. What does it mean? But I found out only recently that it is related to ACT app. And my last question will be, I'm sure it was important for you to talk about stuff. And as you said, that it's a very difficult to say that I was lucky and living in the, so much of uncertainty and losing so many people around that, that you love, or even like volunteering, there's a limit to what we are capable of, of doing. And it's also a situation that in maybe sometimes it can be very difficult to be in a situation when you don't feel like you maybe can change everything like a, a pandemic. So I would also ask as a second question after asking about the act title of I will ask also what do you think that either you or some people that you knew what people can they have for our generations that live with us today and are listening to us I think the biggest thought that came all out of this and you alluded to it which was the phrase silence equals death and that was the same that was on the posters that was on the t-shirts that was what we were chanting was silence equals death if you don't speak up now you're not going to have a chance later that became very very powerful in our culture and so that's for the the people who find about themselves it was mostly stand up and be heard Mm -hmm. So it, it was speak up or pass away, which is not much of a choice when you think about it. Um, so we learned to speak up and we learned to not shut up. And we look at the world these days, it's ever more important for people to stand up and to not be silenced when they see evil and they see things happening that are not right. Silence equals death. And the last thing I would say is that many of us had survived. We felt, and we sometimes still do, 
what they call survivor's guilt. I'm the one that made it. I'm the one that came through it and was so lucky. Because early on, none of us knew. It could have been me. It could have been my partner, Steve. It could have been my best friend, Jeffrey. It could have been my dear friends, Carla and Alina. You just didn't know. And I think that people don't think that's that important, but it really is that commitment. And I also want to make one final comment that many of us, while people were dying, the people that came to help us, the people that put on the strongest face were women, lesbians, people that came forward and stood behind us and beside us and sometimes in front of us to protect us. Many of us owe a great debt to the women in our lives and in our movement. I think there's a lot here also about the fact that silence equals death, but today we have PrEP and PEP and so many, a situation of today, and the person gets HIV, we do not get to, to, to AIDS with the right medication. The people are even undetectable, but it sounds to me that it, it is a lot also thanks to those people who did speak, because otherwise the government and the president there would not, um, they are not the reason probably yeah. for getting into a situation where today we were in which we can be safe. It is thanks to those people and allies that died themselves. Some of that is, is a great deal of that is totally on point. You know, there are treatments now, there are things that people can get, there are things that people can get, get prep, different medications before you have exposure. But the thing that I think a lot of people forget is these treatments, the different combination of drugs and things like that, don't work for everybody. Some people don't have positive reactions. So the thought that we can just pop a pill now, okay, maybe many of us, but there's still going to be some of us who that pill doesn't work and we need to continue fighting and make sure that there's um, payment owed and payment paid to help the different communities in the world. They're still fighting in the U.S. Congress about whether or not we're going to fund AIDS treatment. It's a little pill. And by funding that to organizations and countries around the world, we're saving millions of lives. But it still has that association of it's the other, it's not us, it's the other people, the brown people, the yellow people, the gay people, the trans people who are passing away. Not my problem, their problem. We've seen all too frequently what that results with. It's like, now, if there's a problem, it's everyone's problem. And we all need to do as much as we can 
to still continue the fight. I think that this message is um, very important, yet difficult to listen to, but very, very important. And yeah. Eric, thank you very, very, very much for... Thank, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time.